you would take your scriptures and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7. From emptiness to fullness. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. Again, no name. Um, her name is not mentioned. And, it, and again, I, you could, there's a lot of things you could say about that. Um, but I think her identity is not in her circumstances or even who the husband that she had was or any notoriety. Her name's not mentioned perhaps because her identity is in God and her relationship to him because that seems to be in the text, as you'll see, the most important thing in her life. So the wife of one of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. That's a uh, shorthand phrase for he worshiped God, was devoted to him. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, uh, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Literally, the Hebrew word for jar in this verse is flask. So unless you think it's a big jar, it's probably more like an eight-ounce cup. Okay? Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, circle it, because that's the thrust and the crux of this passage, the contrast that you're going to see as I finish reading it and and, and hear throughout the sermon is how God is expert at taking people's lives that are emptying and transforming them even at times miraculously into fullness. And so the first use here, go outside, borrow vessels, empty vessels, and not a few. Then go in, Shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, there's the contrast. When one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. So picture her pouring the little flask into the first one. It's filled miraculously. And then her sons bring her another and then another and then another. As she poured the vessels, they brought them to her. When the vessels, again, were full, see the contrast? She said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, they got down to the point, there is no, there's not another one. We've taken every vessel that everyone's given to, and they're all full. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. What is the purpose of this paragraph? Why is this story about the widow and her sons in this book of the Bible? Why is it placed right here? There's a couple reasons which we're not going to expand on too much tonight. But theologically, uh, commentators see that Elisha is being demonstrated to be just like his predecessor, Elijah. He, in chapter 1 of this book, was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. His mantle fell on Elisha, and now the sons of the prophets would seem to be uh, an academy training up prophets that Elijah started, that Elisha will end up continuing. 
uh, most prominently in 2 Kings. Seemingly, uh, it's, this is God's demonstration through the things that uh, Elisha does in 2 Kings 4 through 8, demonstrate that the very power of God that was on Elijah is on Elisha. And this is proof that his ministry is from God. Um, they both, Elijah and Elisha, they both raise a child from the dead. They both meet the needs of a widow. Um, they both assist a Gentile, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, uh, for Elisha in chapter 5. Both do things that are located, spectacular things, around Mount Carmel. Both multiply food and oil to provide for and feed people. And, and those aren't even all of the comparisons between the two. So theologically, it demonstrates that Elisha is following in the very steps of Elijah. And God has his hand on him. Uh, Narrative-wise, um, people have seen that Elijah is the forerunner to Elisha. And their relationship to one another is very similar, some have said, uh, to the relationship that John the baptizer had to Jesus. Elijah and Eli- John the baptizer are forerunners. In fact, Jesus himself says that if you have ears to hear that John the baptizer is the Elijah who was to come. And so even that is an identification in the Gospels. And so if Elijah is John the baptizer as the forerunner, that means that his life is pointing to Elisha, and that in some people's minds would equate Elisha being similar to Jesus, who also was pointed to by John the baptizer. So theologically, or in the narrative, you could say, well, there's some really cool things that we could point out in the overall understanding of the Bible that these chapters point to. But on a more personal and practical level, let me tell you what the purpose of this text is. It's a story about God. And although in the chapters of the Bible, and particularly when it comes to the Gospels, and even the New Testament, pretty much every book, that there are a lot of people in the Bible, a lot of characters, a lot of figures, a lot of prominent people, Moses, Paul, I mean, people who are... The Bible really uses a lot about their lives, but the the bottom line is every story um, points back to God. Some more directly, some very indirectly, but the stories are about God in the Old Testament and who he is and what he has done and what the story he's telling is, and this is no different. The story of God in this passage is what he can do to help us when we are faithful to him and when we trust him. And when you read First and Second Kings, you'll find that most of the time, especially in northern Israel, uh, where Elisha and Elijah ministered to, the vast majority of kings, if not almost all of them, were wicked, corrupt, and they did not follow the ways of God. And so this is what it means to have a faith in God that follows him and has devoted him in a time where pretty much everyone around you is apostate. And so God is out to show people that if you would only believe him and keep his word and follow his ways, that God uh, can uh, take care of all the things that come up in your life. It's a story then about how God can take us more directly from emptiness to fullness. And so I'm going to break the text down into two things, basically using that simple outline. We're going to look at two aspects of the widow's life and take some applications and apply them to us in our situations uh, that we find ourselves in perhaps tonight. The first is the widow's emptiness, and then we're going to look at the widow's fullness. It's, it's pretty much that simple. If you uh, are observant of humanity and people and life in general, uh, you won't find it hard to agree with me when I say emptiness comes in all shapes and sizes. 
And to be able to see what it means for this widow um, to move from emptiness to fullness in her life, you're going to have to understand a little bit about what she's going through and has been to uh, been through by the time she comes to see Elisha. And so I'm going to break it down into different kinds of emptiness that she's experienced. All right, and I'm going to build a picture so not only do you understand intellectually or cognitively what she's gone through, but I want you to feel it because, again, tonight, emotional, we're going to talk about that for a moment, emotional emptiness is part of it, and she's going to feel that. And I want you to feel it um, so that when you have these situations or something similar arise in your life, uh, you'll be able to identify with it and respond the way that she did. So what kind of emptiness is she experiencing? First, I say she's, and the text says she's experiencing relational emptiness, Verse 1 says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried. Here's what she says. Your servant, my husband, is dead. Um, She has run out of not only oil, but she's run out of marriage. Um, Her husband has died. Seemingly, from the text, it seems like they were close. He was one of the sons of the prophets. He, He was in a seminary, we might say in modern vernacular today. He was trained. Some commentators think that back in 1 Kings in chapter 18 and 19, where Elijah was hiding out from Jezebel when she was trying to kill all the prophets of God, Elijah at one point thought that he was the only one left. Now I'm, I'm the only one, God. I'm the only one standing up for you. And God tells him in the cave, in the still wind that comes by, he says, no, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. And, and, and some commentators think that he was one of them that he was one of the ones, 7,000 in all of Israel, that had stayed true to Yahweh and to the things of God's word. And, and that's her husband. And so he's one of the prophets. He's been in the academy. He has, according to her estimation, feared the Lord. He was devoted. He stayed true and seemingly at some kind of cost because you're going to find out a little bit they're going to have financial troubles. And so um, he wasn't making a lot of money in the ministry, if I could say it that way. He was really gone through some hard times. Uh, Josephus, who was a writer in, uh, around the time of Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, when the Romans were sacking Israel in that time as historian, he believed that the reason the guy didn't have any money was because he was one of the ones like the prophet Obadiah, who was also characterized in 1 Kings by the phrase, feared the Lord, he was feeding his fellow prophets who were hiding out in caves for their lives. And the reason he didn't have any money, even at times to take care of his own family properly, because he was taking care of others. And, and that may well be, we're not really told why uh, those things were happening, but we do know this, that he had died. And he had passed away, and now she was by herself. And, and relational emptiness is a difficulty, um, Charmel Jones, tonight we prayed for her because that's a reality um, right in front of our face tonight. And, it, and it's maybe one that recently or even in times past that you've faced, losing a loved one. Um, I remember multiple times um, sitting with Ben Backus at his home and he would talk about Shirley and how long they had been married and all those years and all the re- stories about her and him together and, and how difficult it was for him. And that would be an underestimation of how difficult it was for him to continue life without her and the void that was in his life and how he couldn't wait to go see her 
and to be with her as well as obviously the Lord in heaven. I'm losing your spouse, losing your children, losing someone that you love, a friend, a close, you know, a friend of yours or someone that you've known for your whole life. I mean, it's difficult. Um, That person often provides some sort of meaning in your life, of course, in purpose and structure and joy and fulfillment. And on a certain level, of course, that's good. And God would have it that way. Um, I recently talked to someone who was telling me about a conversation uh, with the person that they work with at their job. And that person was telling them about how they had just bought a dog. And that dog was $3,500 for a dog. That's an expensive dog. And jokingly, the person said, they told them, why why did you buy such an expensive dog? And and the person said, and and the guy I was talking to said, I thought it was a joke, but he was serious. He said, well, I didn't really just buy the dog. I traded it in for my, I I traded for my wife. And And he started to laugh and said, what do you mean? And the guy said, well, I got this dog because my wife recently divorced me and I don't have anyone in my life, so I thought I'd get a really good dog. And that sounds maybe foreign or strange to us, but until perhaps you've lost someone that you love or a relationship has broken apart that you weren't expecting, um, some people make those decisions because that's where they're turning when they're empty. When they're empty and they're looking to find fullness, um, for some people, they think maybe a pet will do it for them, at least on some level. Other people, uh, where do they turn? Um, Sometimes people turn to alcohol or drugs to numb the feeling of being alone. Uh, Some people find it in finding another person immediately or the sexual pleasure that they might get. Some turn their hearts and minds to working more often, longer hours, harder, making more money, and then buying things. Maybe if I could just distract myself with some possessions or something along the line. Sometimes we just, some people even just get depressed or become very anxious. And some people retreat into being by themselves and they don't go out as much anymore. And they they begin to move away from friendships that they once have. Some people even stop coming to church They're not as involved anymore. They become self-focused. Some people turn to anger because this has happened and they don't like it and they can't explain it. They become bitter. And uh, some people uh, realize, or or, I could should say, maybe they don't realize that the person that they've lost was actually the center of the solar system of their soul. And some people, even maybe some God's people at times, we put such weight upon people like our spouses or our children or our friends to bring us fullness, to bring us joy and happiness and satisfaction on a level that truthfully only God can do. And when that person moves away or that person leaves or that person ends the relationships or God forbid they even die and then their world begins to fall apart and they make emotional decisions and things begin to take place because they don't realize how much of their life has been wrapped up around that person. So you have to ask your question, the question tonight to you, you know, what would you do? How would you respond? Where would you turn? Where do you turn when you feel the emptiness coming on, when you have a loss that you can't explain and you can't replace? Where do you turn? Who do you turn to? And if we're not careful, we begin to try to find 
the fulfillment of our purpose and meaning in things that were never designed for it. Instead of having purposeful things, we begin to be purposeless. And instead of being meaningful in our lives and our relationship with God, it becomes meaningless. And the emptiness begins to take over in our life. And we're not careful, that can become an emotional disaster. Chapter 4 and verse 1 says that there were some definite emotions in this woman who lost her husband when she comes to Elisha. It says that she cried out in verse 1. And in Hebrew, that's a word that means to literally shriek out of grief. It means to cry at times it's used, cry uncontrollably. And certainly this woman is not stoic. She's not robotic. It's not like she's lost her husband and things have gone downhill and she's immune to its effects on her emotions and her feelings. No, she feels it. She's a real person. She's been crying. She's got heartache and she feels the loss, which was obviously we all would be in that boat because we're human beings and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what she doesn't do, thank God, is allow her feelings to control her and to turn her to places to find fullness in her emptiness that she shouldn't be turning to. She doesn't turn to the wrong people. She doesn't turn to the wrong things. No, she cries out to the man of God who represents God. That's where she turns um, in her emptiness. That's where she looks to find the fullness that she really needs in her life in a time of loss. So she experiences relational emptiness. In the text, it says she experiences emotional emptiness of despair, and, and she turns to God to find the answers to those emptiness that she faced. And also on top of it, and this is what I would call compounded emptiness. It's not just one kind of emptiness. It seems to have kind of like, in a sense, Job. You know, Job lost his animals and then he lost his, his stock, all, all, all his servants, and then he lost his children. I mean, it was one thing after the other. And it's kind of like in a in maybe a lesser way, but nevertheless tragic, that it's kind of like emptiness is just piled one on top of the other. I mean, she loses her house, I mean, her husband. And so she has emptiness because of death. And then she has emptiness because of despair. Now that she doesn't know emotionally what she's going to do. Now, and now she has on top of those two, she gets, has emptiness because of debt. Now she's got, on top of losing her husband and the emotional uh, you know, difficulty she faces from that, not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, and, and then on top of that, she has debt. And, uh, uh, and those are ominous words, aren't they? I mean, look at verse 1. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. See this? That's all good and well, but the creditor has come. You see those words? Those four words just incite fear, don't they? But the cre- I mean, it's one thing to lose your husband. It's one thing to be emotionally a wreck. But in, 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 in all that's happening, knock, knock on the door, and the creditor has come. In the ancient Near East, when you as a woman became a widow and you lost your husband, uh, many people have said that you've also lost your income. Um, to not have a husband and to lose your money because you had no job and no way to have anybody support you, a lot of women... Um, not out of immorality, but would often turn to being a prostitute because it was the only way they thought that they could make it, they could survive. And I'm not saying it's right because it wasn't. 
But that's how desperate people get. That's why she was in despair. She didn't know what she was going to do. Now, in Jewish culture, if you read Exodus chapter 22, you read Deuteronomy chapter 10, numerous places throughout the Psalms and even many throughout the prophets, God has really put together the Jewish economy so that widows would be taken care of. It's just part of what Israel was to be like because God himself cared for the orphan and widow and those two categories are often put together and God even threatens his people in numerous places that if you don't take care of the widow that she cries out to you and you don't take care of her then God says I'll take care of her and not in a good way I'll also take care of you. And a lot of judgment was brought on people Isaiah 1 Zechariah, other, other times, God, part of the reason God brought judgment is because they were not taking care of and showing justice to people like the widows and orphans. And that bleeds into the New Testament. I mean, they called the, the first seven deacons, and the reason was so the apostles wouldn't have to take care of waiting tables and helping, it said, the widows in Acts 6, 1 through 4. I mean, you can read James 1.27. James is trying to tell you what a real faith is like, what it means to be a genuine Christian. And chapter 1 of James in verse 27, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. I mean, that was the test case. I mean, to love widows, take care of them, provide for them, make sure they didn't fall through the cracks. That was what Jewish economy was about. That's what the New Testament church is about, taking care of those people. But in our text, it doesn't seem like that was taking place. And I don't know what city she lived in or where she was, but she may not have had any other biological family members by who could step in and help her out. And maybe she didn't have a biological family, and certainly her societal family, her Jewish family, seemingly didn't step in either. So put this together. Here's a woman that's compounding all of her emptiness, and she may feel, uh, along with all the other things, that she's really not loved. I mean, maybe she's not even wanted. Now that she doesn't have a husband, now that she doesn't have any status, any place, any influence in culture with her money or her position... Maybe people have forgotten her. Maybe the people she thought were her friends really weren't. Maybe even, maybe even, because God hasn't raised up people, maybe he doesn't care either. Let me compound it a little bit more. It's not just that she doesn't have any money and she's on the verge of poverty. It's that because of it, she now stands, in fact, it's happening, even as the the words are written, she is going to lose her own sons, plural, You know, it's one thing to lose your husband, isn't it? I mean, as awful as that would be. But now she's in danger, at least temporarily, which couldn't end up being years. She's going to lose her sons to slavery because in ancient Near East, if you had a debt that you couldn't pay and the creditors come and you don't have the money to cancel the debt, then your children, if you're the man, it's your children and your wife, they're going to go into slavery and not the worst kind of slavery that perhaps you're thinking of. All slavery is bad and, and bad. Let me tell you this. But this slavery would be to be working for people. You would have to work for them however long it took to pay off your debt. And it could be for months or years. And that's where she's at. And she doesn't know what's going to happen to her sons. And that's the situation she is. So get this, put it together. She is nameless. She is husbandless. She may be on the verge of being homeless and childless. But you know what she's not? She's not faithless. You get that? She's not faithless. She's nameless, 
husbandless, perhaps homeless, and soon to be childless, but she's not faithless. You know where she turns, you know where she goes in her darkest day, in her darkest hour? She turns to the man of God. She turns to God for the answers. Can I encourage you tonight, whatever empty situation you might find yourself in, do not ever be afraid to cry out when you run out. When you run out of things, when you run out of the things that you need, don't ever be afraid to cry out to God. Where you turn in your darkest hours and your darkest days tells and speaks volumes about who you are. Where you go when the bottom of your life has dropped out, when you lose your family and your feelings and your finances all at once. When you turn to God, that's a tribute to his greatness. So we've got a picture now, number one, right, of the widow's emptiness. You you see what she's up against. You see how she would be thinking, how she was feeling, how the uncertainty is, and and the fear that she faces, and all the possibilities of the worst-case scenarios that could be taking place. But look how God changes that all in verses 2 through 7. That's our second point. Not only the widow's emptiness, but the widow's fullness. This is, most definitely, a story of complete reversal. Let me tell you how this story fits in here contextually, because this whole four chapters about Elisha are filled with stories of reversals. In chapter 3, there's a reversal of defeat, and God brings out of a terrible situation where Jehoshaphat aligns himself uh, with foreign dictators and kings he should never do, but God, because Jehoshaphat loves him, he brings victory out. Of, so he, he reverses defeat. Chapter 4, our story, he reverses debt. Chapter 4, at the end of it, he reverses debt when he raises the, the Shunammite's woman, or, or I should say son, from the dead. In verse chapter 5, he reverses disease when he heals the leprosy of Naaman. So here we go. God's story, one after the other. He can reverse defeat, debt, Death, disease, what's, why? Why string all of these stories together, ours being in the middle? Why? Because it's a picture of who God is and what he can do. And can I tell you this? In the middle of your emptiness, the most important thing you have to come to the realization is not who you are and what you can do. That's not it. In the middle of your darkest days and difficult hours, it's not about who you are and what you can do. It better be about who God is and what he can do. And what can he do? Well, he can reverse anything. Let me build on that point just a little bit. Not only can he reverse defeat and debt and death and disease, but look who's in these stories. Some of the stories are about men and some of them are about women. There are stories about Jewish people God reverses, and there's even a story about Naaman who's a Gentile. There's a story about a poor woman who has nothing but a little bit of flask of oil. The next very story is about a Shunammite woman who's rich enough to put a room on her house just so Elisha can use it when he passes by. So, so what do you got? God is the God of reversal and can do all these things, but who can he do it for? Well, he can do it for men or women. He can do it for Jew or Gentile. He can do it for rich, and he can do it for poor. You see how it works? Why those stories? Because our God is the God who is able to meet any and all needs, anytime, anywhere, anyone. He is the ultimate expert of turning emptiness into fullness, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, 
or spiritual. Say, Pastor Walker, that's encouraging. That's helpful because I find myself in a place of emptiness tonight. How do I receive God's fullness? How do I, how does God move my life from emptiness to fullness? Well, there's two things, and we'll close with this, that you have to realize. Number one, you have to realize that your resources are never enough. Your resources are never, verse two says, Elisha sees her plight, he understands her emptiness, and here's what he asks, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? And here's what she says, ready in return? Your servant has, underline it, nothing. I don't have anything. I mean, this is going to be all of you, God. All I have is a little flask of oil. It's like you, you try to cash a check and it comes back insufficient funds. I don't have enough to even pay for that. I mean, I might sign the check and put the amount in there, but I don't have enough for that. I, I can't pay for that. I ran out of gas when I first came here. Um, down on Whitehorse Hamilton Road, I, I, down there about maybe a mile from the Shell Station. And I didn't have a gas can. I didn't have any cash. And they didn't have cell phones then, or I didn't have one. And I remember getting out of my car going like, okay, I haven't even been here very long. I'm gonna... So I walked down and I remembered that we had a gas account at the Shell station. I walked up there, told him who I was, but I didn't have anything. I said, I don't have any money. Can I put it on the account? <laughs> Can I get a gas can? Because I don't have anything. Listen, I had nothing. I didn't even have a flask of gas. <laughs> I had nothing. And, and you know, it's, an, it's a weird feeling. You're hoping that, okay, hoping I don't have to walk all the rest of the way down to the house, walk back. I hope. You know what? It, when you have ever felt it, you have nothing, nothing at all. God does that sometimes in her life. You know what he does? God put her in a place where she would have to be totally dependent on him. She wants, he wants her to come to the place where she realizes that if you're going to have your needs met, it's not because of your own resources. Your resources are never enough. Annie Johnson Flint was born in Vineland, New Jersey. And uh, her parents both died uh, when she was very, very young, before the age of eight. She had a, a set of foster parents who loved her. Only a few years after they had taken her into her home and her sister, they both died. A few years later, she had another foster home. Both of those parents, I mean, she went through two foster, she was orphaned twice not even counting her original biological parents. And, and she became penniless, and her sister and her became homeless. They didn't know what they were going to do. In their late teens, Annie Johnson Flint uh, contracted severe arthritis. It, it became so bad um, that by her early 20s, she found herself for the rest of her life uh, being dependent on a wheelchair that experience, because she responded by turning to the Lord, she became a very famous poet and hymn writer. Now she's written numerous poems and hymns that are in our hymn book. One is God Has Not Promised, but the one that I like the best is the song she wrote called He Giveth More Grace. Listen to the lyrics. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. He, to added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, 
his multiplied peace. Listen to verse 2. When we have exhausted the store of our endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, hear this, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. You know what Annie Johnson Flint came to know in a wheelchair? That God's fullness can't come into her life until she recognizes her emptiness. That having fullness in your life isn't based on whether you're in a wheelchair or not. It's based on whether you have God or not. Her chorus of the song goes, His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Annie Johnson Flint would tell you tonight, it's not the problem that's the problem. It's your response to the problem that is the problem. And perhaps God had you come and listen live stream tonight. You know what? Because maybe he's waiting for you tonight. Maybe he wants to pour out his blessing and his provision on you. Maybe he wants to show you what he can do in your life. But he's waiting. You know what he's waiting? For you to come and reach the end of your hoarded resources. He's, he wants you to stop trying to think, oh, it's just me and my wisdom, my intellect, my manipulating circumstances and situations. Not because God doesn't call on us to do our part, because he did use her little flask of oil. But he needs you to recognize your nothingness, your emptiness, that you can't pay your debt without him. And isn't that really the crux when it comes to salvation? I mean, if you're here tonight and you're not sure of eternity and your relationship with God, you're not sure that you are right before him and where you're going to spend eternity. Listen, it all comes down to this. Is is your righteousness really anything or is it nothingness? You're never going to pay the debt of your sin. You're never going to do it apart from God's provision of grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is going to pay your debt or the debt will not be paid. So here's what the prophet tells her, verse 3 and 4. Go borrow vessels. Go to all your neighbors. Get all the empty vessels, just like you are. Empty vessels that of themselves have no value, but I'm going to use them. And not just a few. So he says, I want you to think big because I'm going to do something big. Anytime God pays your debts and shows you grace, it is an amazing thing. So he says, and pour it into those vessels, those empty ones. And then one by one, God says, I'm going to make them all full. God, thankfully, is in the business of reversals, miraculously transforming emptiness into fullness. So, and to get that fullness, number one, in your life, you have, to come, you have to say, my resources are never n- enough. Flip the coin over, and here's the other thing you have to say. But God's resource, resources are always enough. Verse 5. Imagine, if you can, real quickly, imagine the conversation that this woman has with her neighbors. She starts going out. She's got nothing, right? The creditors have come to take her sons away. She's on the verge of losing absolutely everything. And so she's going to do this crazy thing, the prophet says. So she starts knocking on the doors. Hey, can I borrow all your pots and pans? Can I borrow? No, all of them. What are you going to do with them? Don't even worry about it right now. Just give me the pots and pans because God's going to do something great. What is he going to do? Well, just give me the pots and pans. And she, and she goes house after house after house, all through her little village or wherever she lives. 
I mean, obviously, she's got more than what she can carry herself. She brings her sons along, so it looks even stranger than that. So they're all carrying pots and pans or containers or whatever it is back to the house. And she walks in the door, her son's with her, and pot, and there's filling that place with as many empty vessels as possible. And I don't even know what the world she would have ever told her son. Mom, why are we doing this? Maybe you need to sit down and take a rest. It's very hot outside today. I think you're delusional. You know what she says? I may not understand it all. But here's what I do understand, that God cares about me. He cares about us. And God can do whatever it takes to meet my needs. I don't know if he will, but I know that he can. And then the emptiness to the fullness begins. Verse 3, put those full ones aside. Verse 4, when one is full, verse 6, when the vessels were full, and, and, and the idea, the story, using those words are, is to see God is taking her life from emptiness to fullness, and he does it. He does it by his own power. And by the way, he does it in such a way that she goes in the house and she shuts the doors. Why? Because this isn't about how great uh, God's not looking for some marketing scheme. He wants this woman, and, and he wants it to be a teachable moment for her sons to say, listen, turn to me, trust me, depend on me, because I can handle anything that you face. I can handle any kind of emptiness, no matter how deep it goes. I can transform it into fullness. Naomi said, this was her life. Ruth 1, 21. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. See, if you don't let turn to God and find his fullness in place of your emptiness, that's what can happen. Bitterness. She says, listen to this. I went out full, but, God, but the Lord has brought me home again empty. She said, see, God has wrecked my life. God has changed everything. And I used to be, everything was great, but now my husband's dead, my daughter-in-law's husband's, my sons are dead, and I've come back and I've got nothing, I'm destitute. What has God done to me? But you know what the book of Ruth is about? It's a reversal of that story. She thinks that she's gone from fullness to emptiness, but what God does is takes her emptiness and transforms it into the fullness that she really never had before, and that's God working in her life in a miraculous and amazing way. See, perhaps God has that in store for you tonight. And you think your life is going from full to empty, and God says, oh, you've got it wrong. You let go of your resources, and you hold on to mine, and I'll take that emptiness and I can turn it into a kind of fullness that you've never experienced before. And that day, oil was liquid money. It really was. And when God steps into the situation she's in and, and the slavery of her sons and her financial problems and all that was going on, the Bible says that they brought pan after pan, empty vessel, after, and they keep full. And it wasn't that the oil ran out and they stopped, but the Bible says that she didn't have any other pans and says then the oil stopped. It wasn't that God was limited, that she didn't have enough pans. Can I tell you this? Oh, I don't know, Pastor Walker. You, if you understood my emptiness, I don't know. And this is not a rich a health and wealth thing that you just trust God and he's going to fill your pans with money. That's not the whole point of it. The point of it is that God can take your emptiness in whatever form it takes, and he can, if he chooses to, give you a different kind of fullness, a fullness that can change your life if you'll trust him. He never runs out. There's no limits. 
to what he can do. God can do that. He can do it financially. He can do it relationally. And of course, most of all, he can do it spiritually because he gives more grace. I can tell you this tonight. He can take your worst day and turn it into your best day. Not just for your benefit, but most of all for his glory. So what he does in private for you, you can make public to make his name famous. God did that through Naomi. He did it through this woman. And he wants to do it through your life also. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this story in the Bible. This unknown, unnamed woman that trusted you in the most difficult days and you took her emptiness and turned it into fullness. If it would bring you glory, Master, if it could point to you, we pray that you might transform our emptiness into your fullness as we seek to be satisfied and joyful in all that you are for us in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.